Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we watched The Verdict. An outcast, alcoholic Boston lawyer sees the chance to salvage his career in self-respect by taking a medical malpractice case to trial rather than settling. All right. We are wrapping up our Oscars 82 series. Mm-hmm. With a movie that I have meant to see for a long, long time. <laughs> okay. I mean, is it the best movie? No. But is it a good, solid courtroom drama? I gotta hand it to it. It's very compelling. It's rough. I mean, I think that's really my my biggest complaint, is that they, they don't quite sand down the edges. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think that's a plot thing for me. Because the flip side is, I don't want them to sand down the edges of these characters because they feel so real because of that. We have some story problems that have to do with the writing. Because the story itself is fine. There's like one thing for me that's really missing. And that's like, I feel like this attorney is just trying to get by. He just wants to be a functioning alcoholic attorney. And then there's something about this case that like gets to him and he he's willing to risk it all. And I don't think they sold the switch for him. They kind of sold it for me, but I can see why it wouldn't be sold for everyone. Yeah. So I, I think that is the only like story problem that I have, but that's not a huge problem. That's not a huge issue to me because all of the courtroom drama is fabulous. I just love this is a movie that's not afraid to get into the scuzziness of lawyers. Mm-hmm. We talked about this when we when we saw Kramer versus Kramer as mm-hmm. well, where it was like the attorneys were very realistically portrayed of you need to understand right now this is going to be ugly. Yes. And it's not going to feel good. Yeah. And it's the same way with this movie is neither of these men, I mean, they fight dirty, yes, but they fight dirty because that's how they've been trained to do it. Mm -hmm. And they're in, you know, malpractice, which is it's it's one of the the scuzzier forms of law. Yeah, because at the end of the day, you have to reduce a human being to a number. That's how malpractice works. And uh, I. If nothing else, it makes me want to read the source material. It makes me interested in more movies like this. Mm-hmm. I wish we did more courtroom dramas where everybody is imperfect. Yeah, and I I think television does that a lot more because you have more time. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why I love like I love legal dramas I mean I was too young for LA law but my parents my mom was obsessed with it and I remember like seeing bits of it and being real like finding it really compelling so it's no it's no wonder that I love things like the good wife and I haven't watched the good fight but I will so yeah like courtroom drama I'm here for this when it is actually a courtroom drama it does make me wonder if this is ahead of its time in a certain sense Not that the courtroom drama wasn't a thing, but is this a bit ahead of its time in trying to portray very flawed characters as the heroes in a courtroom drama? Um, Flawed characters, I think, is not the point. 
a flawed system. Mm, that too. I think is more and and how manipulated it can be because we've seen you know uh, you know the the legal injustice film and this one while it is that it's also these guys are using the law and even our guys say well he's right on the law part like he is he's just using the tool the way they have trained themselves to yep and that is what makes the law so interesting and so frustrating and so compelling and perfect for um human stories and so i think maybe that's where this might feel ahead of the time to- it's time oh no it is it is interesting there was a lot put into it. The budget for this movie was $16 million. Okay. You've got uh, some giant, giant movie stars in this movie, so... Yes. I'm not, I'm not surprised. But it made $54 million. It did pretty well, especially for a movie that... A I mean, it's compelling, movie. but it's small, and it doesn't have a lot going on. Yeah, it's, a, it's not flashy at all. Mm-mm. This is a character piece. But it was destined to be an instant hit from the moment the novel was put out. Richard Zanuck and David Brown picked up the option for the book for 150 grand, mm-hmm. having read the galleys a week before it went public. So our producers saw this novel immediately and went, mm-hmm. we got to make this a movie. <laughs> cool. And I, you know, financially and just from a perspective, I got to say that not a bad decision. This is a really great story to make a movie out of. Mm-hmm. So let's get into our writing. We have our novel, which is written by Barry Reed. Reed was actually a widely regarded trial lawyer that specialized in medical malpractice. Okay. He went on to write several different novels, but this, his debut novel, is his most famous. Sure. His protege was Jan Schlichtman, whose lawsuit over leukemia deaths in contaminated drinking water was the basis for the film A Civil Action. Oh, okay. So Barry Reed is very much the proto-John Grisham. Yes, that feels very accurate. His books came out before Grisham started writing his stuff, and Grisham was a very different kind of lawyer. Yes. Grisham did civil litigation, and especially, Mm -hmm. I think, dealt in like higher and um, corporate stuff, and was also a member of the Mississippi House of Representatives before he started writing. Mm Mm-hmm. So it was sort of a, a much different vibe for him. And he, of course, came from the South. So he had that perspective. Sure. But Reed was really getting into the nitty gritty of like, this is how ambulance chasers work. Yeah. Now, our screenplay is written by someone we've never talked about on this show before. Mm-hmm. We've talked about this man a lot in our lives, though. We have. His name is David Mamet. Hmm. <sighs> He is a playwright of some renown. A little bit. But we're going to talk about his screenplays because he has written a number of them. He has. Before this, he wrote The Postman Always Rings Twice. After this, he wrote The Untouchables, House of Games, Things Change, We Are No Angels, Homicide, Glengarry Glen Ross, Hoffa, Oleana, American Buffalo, The Edge, The Spanish Prisoner, Wag the Dog, Ronan, State in Maine, Hannibal, Heist, Spartan, Edmond, Red Belt, and The Unit for television. He might be a great A asshole, but he does write pretty good stuff. Yep. We should also mention that in an uncredited role, but uh, having contributed significantly to the script at a certain point, mm-hmm. was J. Presson Allen, 
We've mentioned her several times for Cabaret, Funny Lady, and A Star is Born from 1976. Hmm. Very much a script doctor. But, as we'll discuss when we get through the trivia, Mamet really is the central writer of this finished film. Hmm. So, what do we think of the writing? Well, it is very good. It's the right tempo for courtroom drama. That is what Mamet's really good at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's good. I mean, I really only have that one story point. It, it retreats within its, its characters a bit too much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's, that leads to that one complaint, and it, that's the problem throughout the movie, not just for that one thing of we're never really sold on why Frank Galvin really takes this case. Mm-hmm. We are given some exposition to explain it. Mm-hmm. But we don't ever really see it or hear it from Frank of why he is finally deciding to take a moral stand. Yeah. But nevertheless, I the full disclosure here is I studied Mamet. I did a whole thesis on Mamet. And watching this, I can't help but listen to the iambic pentameter, the meter going throughout all the different lines. Mm-hmm. I think what's really awesome about this is that the actors... The actors are so good here, mm-hmm. and the actors are committed to a very natural style that works for the lines. Yes. I think about, you know, if when we watch something like Deadwood, which was written in a similar meter, but very specifically phrased to point out that convention. Yes. So you're supposed to notice that they're talking in a high metered language. Yes. And in this, at no point does it feel like that. Mm-hmm. Like if you're really paying attention to the lines, you'll see that the phrasing is mixed a little differently than what you would think would happen in a conversation. But somehow it always feels right and natural. Mm. I'm an attorney on trial before the bar representing my client. My client. You open your mouth, you're losing my case for me. Now listen to me. No, you listen to me. All I want on this trial was a fair shake. Okay? Push me into court five days early. I lose my star witness, and I can't get a continuance, and I don't care. I'm going up there, I'm going to try it, I'm going to let the jury decide. You know, they told me about you. Said you're a hard-ass, you're a defendant's judge. Well, I don't care. I said to hell with it, to hell with it! And that was always Mammoth's big thing, and it really comes through in this script. You know, I I think the dialogue and the characters are fantastic. It's just the plot that suffers just a little bit because it, it just, they didn't give it enough attention. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you get in that courtroom and it's super compelling. Yeah. <laughs> and it's it's tense, but in just the right way. Yeah. It never feels hammy or overdone. It just feels right. And again... I got to have a lot of credit to the acting on that. Oh, yeah. The acting's fabulous. <laughs> but Mamet didn't screw it up, for sure. No, he didn't. And he gave a really good baseline here for them to work off of. So props to him on that. The story may draw some inspiration from a very famous case of Karen Ann Quinlan. Quinlan fell into a coma after consuming Valium and alcohol while she was on a crash diet, and then she fell into a vegetative state. Quinlan's parents wanted to remove her ventilator, but the doctors refused, citing the threat of prosecution from the state. The parents sued, and that case became one of the landmark early cases 
in the right to die laws that are still continuing to be debated to this day. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people think that Reed used that case as a basis for the fictional novel that that's going on with this. Hmm. Now, getting into some of the history with this, Mamet was the original writer of this script, but a lot of people didn't like it. Okay. Because they thought it was too dark. I mean, it's not a happy story. It's not. And at one point, attached to star in this film was Robert Redford. <laughs> Which is adorable. <laughs> Redford, however, felt really uncomfortable with the main character. Mm. He didn't like how, you know, deeply troubled and alcoholic and, you know, fumbling he was. Mm -hmm. And so after reading that script, he hired screenwriter and director James Bridges, who did The China Syndrome, The Paper Chase, and Urban Cowboy, mm -hmm. to write another draft. Okay. And then another draft. And kept having him come back with rewrites until Redford finally decided he just couldn't do the film. It was just too much. Fair. J. Preston Allen was brought in to replace Mamet when another director, Arthur Hiller, left the whole production. Hmm. And so the whole thing was going through development hell and everybody was like, well, this script's got something to it, but it's just too much. And then Sidney Lumet came in as our director. And we'll get to him in just a little bit. But when he read the drafts, and all the different scripts, he went back to the original Mammoth script and went, this is the movie that needs to be made. Mm -hmm. And so he he actually said he never read the novel. Okay. He said the screenplay was so good, he didn't feel like he needed to go back to the source material. Well, I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. Well, he also said later that if anybody had sent him the book to read before he decided to direct, he would have actually said to their face it was impossible to adapt. Hmm. And so I think probably the novel, I, I have to bet the novel gets into some of the technical details. Probably. That are too much to try to comprehend because it is fascinating. The litigation involved here is incredibly complicated. Yeah. Like if you're if you're going to actually break this down and you've got a lawyer who's actually going to kind of roll you through that, mm -hmm. it's very complex. But ma'am, that's one key regard to Mamet is he threads it throughout the whole script, mm -hmm. leading it into a perfect little mystery to solve of how the complexity mixes. And like you think this case is sunk yeah, the entire time. Mm hmm. It is wild to watch that it's just like, you know, they don't have a chance in hell, and yet they somehow figure out a way to make it work. Yeah. Other fun notes, Mammoth's original screenplay did not have a verdict at the end. Oh. Originally, Frank was literally just going to walk out down the hallway, hmm. and that was going to be the end of the movie. He was just going to not, not come back because he'd done what he came to do. Yeah. However, Richard D. Zanuck, the producer commented that if the film was left as is, it would require a question mark on the promotional materials. I don't disagree. So finally, Lumet went to Mamet and was like, you have to write a verdict. I understand that inclination. Like, I, I, I do. It's a very stage thing to do. Sure. If you were doing this on stage, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Well, no, there's a way to leave it vague here because I'm totally fine with a vague ending. And I think the way they could have done it was we we see him get up 
like we kind we kind of go to one of those shots where you're in the back of the courtroom and you you there's just no audio and we see him leave and we really don't get a feel from him which way it went yeah and you see the family and you see just uh, like a just an embrace like just a tearful embrace from them and that could have and that could have been it that was the verdict and then you that's how you can let the audience decide because is the family happy or are they sad or both <laughs> or both i mean they're sad no matter what but are they happy with the outcome or not because it's they're i mean they're ultimately the ones who are the most affected by this yeah at the end of the day i think they <laughs> You know, they were like, we're committing money to this, man. We <laughs> we need an ending. We have to actually do something here, especially when the title is The Verdict. The verdict. I The thing <laughs> is, I don't like the ending we got. I don't I don't have a problem with him, you know, seeing her across the rotunda. I That's fine. But then like just him sitting in his office like it, eh, it it's it doesn't hit the right note for me. Interesting. Well, that sequence was not in the script. Mm. Lumet devised that scene with Newman and Rampling. Mm. And specifically, the the idea was to show that Laura was drinking mm-hmm. and Frank was sober. Okay. And Newman confirmed that in that scene, Frank is not drinking any alcohol. He is drinking a cup of coffee mm. to show that he has escaped from his own hell. Well, that's nice. So they might have tried a little too hard to put a button on it. Yeah. And I, I think, think that's fair. That's fair. I don't hate it. I don't like I like that juxtaposition, although I almost wish that if you did that, you also had the thing of we don't find out what the verdict is. Mm -hmm. We just hear the score as they leave the courtroom and you see people react. Mm -hmm. You see her across the way and then you just see her drinking and he's finally feeling free and calm. Sure. And she's just had to she feels like she's had to ruin herself. Mm hmm. I think that's a that's a better juxtaposition there and it would it would make a bigger impact. It's messy. It's a little messy landing. Bumpy landing. Mm-hmm. But uh it's a great great story for the most part on its own and mm-hmm. and a really interesting script all around. But let's talk about our directing. Mm. He's back. We have had some opinions about this man's directing style. Mm-hmm. It is Sydney Lumet. He of Dog Day Afternoon and Network. How do you feel about Sidney Lumet's directing of this movie? I think it's good. I I I don't think it's particularly like fascinating. It's not I don't think it's anything special. I think out of the three movies we've watched of his, this is the first one where his hands-off directing style mm-hmm. really works. I, I didn't notice his directing, and in the other films, you notice it, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. Dog Day Afternoon works to an extent because of sure. how much like deep, deep emotional stuff you've got to go through mm-hmm. with the characters. Sure. So the improv really makes a lot of sense there. I think he directs this a lot like he would direct a stage production. Mm-hmm. Unless we forget, this is the man who did the like original big time courtroom drama, Twelve Angry Men. Oh yeah. So like he's this is a guy who does understand his way around a courtroom drama. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in this one, again, part of it is that he has the confidence of having incredibly good actors, mm-hmm. like phenomenal actors who are there and understand exactly what they need to do. Mm-hmm. 
and he's got a script that is, I mean, I think probably a little bit better than anything he's done before. Mm -hmm. Dog Day Afternoon was essentially an outline for him. And Network was a bit over the top for his style. Let's forget that he did that. Yeah. And like, this is the first time where it's such a solid, like super sturdy script and story for the most part Mm -hmm. that he doesn't need to do a whole lot. He just needs to marshal all of it and make it work together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he keeps everything really tight and sort of just intimate drama until you get to the courtroom. Mm -hmm. And then he makes it big and huge and it makes a lot of sense. You feel the gravity of that courtroom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Because everything is dark through the whole movie, but in that moment, it's dark and also huge. (laughs) Yes. And so everything feels really weighty. And God, that shot of the Polaroids developing. That was awesome. I I was like, dang, man, that's good. (laughs) He keeps it very simple, and that really works for this movie specifically. Yes. This isn't a movie where you need or should use you know, flashy stuff. Not a lot. I mean, you can you can pepper it in when it when it needs to make an impact, but mm-hmm. otherwise you've you've kind of got to just let it play out as it's going to play out. Mm-hmm. Lumet filmed two different versions of the result of the verdict. Okay. Uh, the first is just a series of shots of Newman walking away from the courtroom, never seeing what happens. Okay. Again, I like that. Mm-hmm. Even if we hear the verdict. For Frank to decide, I don't care, I did my best. (laughs) I did what I could. I tried to give somebody justice for once in my fucking career. (laughs) But instead, they opted to use the sequence of him leaving the courthouse. It could have just been how they filmed it, and it just looked better. And this guy, have to give him credit. He is one of our most efficient directors. He brought the film in after only 43 days of shooting, one week ahead of schedule. Good for him. He is a master of efficiency. Well, there, there's that, but also like, no, I got it. We're fine. I, yeah. I, don't need, I don't need to take it 12 more times just because. And of course, we did have that who could have been better. Arthur Hiller, who directed Silver Streak and See No Evil, Hear No Evil. Wow, that'd be the wrong tone for this movie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we got we got our good guy. But now let's talk about what is very truly the best thing about this movie, and that is our outstanding cast. Mm-hmm. And we start with old Blue Eyes himself. Old Blue Eyes to me, at least, because Frank's such a pissy little drama queen. Mm-hmm. It's Paul Newman playing Frank Galvin. Paul Newman. We have talked about him several times for Cool Hand Luke, The Sting, and Slapshot. Oh, yeah. And he's Paul Newman. He's Paul Newman. He's awesome. He aged so well. Like, um,. He just looks very, uh, not, I don't, because he's not distinguished, but he has this distinguished older gentleman look, which is very nice. This is the exact moment when he moved from silver, foxy, still kind of handsome older guy Mm -hmm. into full on older actor. Yes. And part of it's the role and part of it's the styling and the makeup. You know, I don't, it would be interesting to go see like, photographs or something i feel like they almost grayed out his eyes using the lighting i don't know i you know his eyes just don't look very blue and that's not like 
a slight against and they just don't read as blue in this movie they they're a little more gray and that could be lighting it could be you know the color palette of his clothing it could Mm -hmm. also just be the fact that his hair has gotten so white that you know his eyes have dulled in comparison he needed some of that blonde to make the blue look so blue um totally possible but it's noticeable in a good way for this movie yeah it works it works for this guy because it's just like you can tell this guy was charming and compelling in a courtroom Mm -hmm. and it's like the light faded yeah when he had to do something that violated his his morals yeah he's he's just fantastic and again does an amazing job of playing drunk you know did look it up and paul newman by all accounts was a functional alcoholic mm-hmm. he, he definitely was a drinker did that throughout a lot of his life but he also tried really hard to uh, he, he talked a lot about not wanting to overdo it and trying to help other people who were having problems mm-hmm. he he definitely struggled but I think also really tried to find that line for himself as well. Newman, of course, praised everything about this movie. Quote, I'd rather have the freedom to do the kind of pictures like The Verdict in my career. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also said that about Absence of Malice, which he was in the year before. But um, I think he was very excited to take a role like this because all through his career, he still had to be the kind of charming guy. Yeah. <laughs> no matter where they put him. And in this one, he just got to act. Yeah. That's a lot of what he's doing here. It was Paul Newman's idea for Frank to use eye drops to try to hide the redness in his eyes. Mm. And he completed the closing arguments in a single take. Very cool. Because he is Paul fucking Newman. It's hard to say superlatives about it because it's just like, it's just one of those performances you're just like, you just got to watch it. I mean, he is that good. But he's also just compelling. If I had never seen a Paul Newman film before, I would have been just as easily captivated by what he did. It's up in the top levels of his performances because he was such an icon and movie star. Mm -hmm. I think you can forget he also was very, very able to melt into a role. Yeah. And... You know, it depended on the movie. You watch something like The Sting. No, the whole point is to put Paul Newman's charming smile on screen. Sure. But when you watch this, you're like, oh, yeah, he can totally transform if you need him to. He's that good. Yeah. <laughs> and this this showcases that like no other movie does. Who could have been better? We, of course, mentioned Robert Redford. Uh, I don't know. Um, Like if we remade it. In the past five years, maybe? No, I think when they made this, he could not have done this. I think he needed to be a little bit older as a person to play this role. Just with the way he is. Because the other thing about him that is different from Paul Newman is Robert Redford reads younger. Because he has this very natural, playful quality. It's the exact same thing as Brad Pitt, which those two get compared all the damn time but that's that's it it's just there it's this playful youthful quality that comes off like they just read younger it is funny though because with all of the like specific ticks and actions mm-hmm. that newman uses in this movie i'm like brad took so much from this oh everybody stole left and right from them 
Oh, yeah. Oh, they're, yeah. They're the gold standard for Hollywood hunk. Well, it works, man. It does. Also, who could have been better? Offering to take the role for free, Frank Sinatra. Where? I, again, this movie required such good, like, as great as the cast is and as much as we will extol them, I will also say that the movie also needed that caliber to really work. Sure. Like, one of the things that I've seen that with some of the other stuff I've seen Mamet do is when you don't have, like, the best of the best in the room, it doesn't play right. It feels stagey, unless you're on stage, right? And in this case, you've got people who understand, oh, I see what he's doing. He's making this so that it feels natural. So we have to buy into that. Mm -hmm. And they're able to adjust how they're doing the scene to make that work and, and wrap their wrap their acting around the words. Mm -hmm. And so I think if you don't have a cast like as solid as this and you've got somebody like Frank Sinatra, it's going to read weird. Mm. Uh, I, he's, he's not right for this movie. No, he's not. And he's a great actor. He really is. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Other who could have been betters. He wanted to be in everything. Dustin Hoffman. He really did. No. <laughs> in what world is Dustin Hoffman right for this movie? Mm-hmm. John Voight. I'm a little more intrigued there. That makes sense. He's the right demeanor and look for this. But by 82, he's, he's still got the Redford problem. You're too young. Uh, but John Voight doesn't read young. Well, that's fair. That's different. Somebody that would read even better than that is Roy Scheider. Okay. I can buy Roy Scheider as Frank Galvin all day. Yep. Oh, yeah. Cary Grant. Mm. Ooh. Different twists. Okay. But fully capable. And our man, William Holden. Mm-hmm. Hell yeah. I mean, there's no daylight between William Holden and Frank Galvin, so. True. But we watched him on network. Like, hell yeah, he could do this. He was so good in that. He's great in that. Great in Bridge on the River Kwai. Great in pretty much everything he's ever been in. Bridge on Kwai. Ron Swanson approved. All right. Well, let's talk about our next actor, that is Charlotte Rampling as Laura Fisher. Mm. Now, Charlotte Rampling, for a lot of people our age, hasn't become like a known person until relatively recently mm -hmm. because she keeps showing up and is like nominated and stuff. But she's been in a ton of movies. Mm. Okay. Before this, she actually had a role in A Hard Day's Night. <laughs> okay. The Knack and How to Get It, Georgie Girl, The Damned, Tis Pity She's a Whore, Zardoz, The Night Porter, and Stardust Memories. After this, she was in Angel Heart, Spy Game, Swimming Pool, The Statement, Babylon AD, The Duchess, Life During Wartime, Never Let Me Go, Melancholia, Night Train to Lisbon, Dexter on Television, 45 Years, Broadchurch, Assassin's Creed, Red Sparrow, and she was most recently the mother of the Bene Gesserits. In Dune. Mm. What do we think of Charlotte Rampling in this movie? She's great. I enjoyed her character. I'm fine with the role she played, honestly. It added a, a little extra interest to his personal life. You know, some of that real life intrigue that's going on in the lawyer's life. Um, Yeah, cool. And she feels real. Yeah. They, like, they all just, they feel lived in. 
this character could be such a stupid afterthought and yes. very misogynist. And I mean, by its nature, it is. She could play so easily into that trope of the woman caught in in the workplace of like, how do you get ahead and, and all of this stuff. Mm-hmm. And they take that and then they really put the moral conflict into her character. Yeah. You see her go through all of the feelings about it. Sure. That's what makes it so compelling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then she's just so good. She's especially good at face acting, mm-hmm. which is a lot of what you have to see in this movie from her. Sure. <laughs> Everything is coming in the side glances and figuring out how to get away and how to react in the moment because she is such a reactive character but she brings so much to that um Mm -hmm. especially just because of what an interesting look and voice she has and all of this she's a very she's a very noir smoky femme Mm -hmm. but in a but in a very realistic way and that just makes it really good Mm -hmm. who could have been better julie christie turned down the role oh okay mean we don't have the greatest things to say about her, but it wasn't her fault. It was the movie's fault. Yeah. And who could have been better? Sally Field. Ooh, interesting. Now, we don't know for certain that Sally was interested in this role. We mm-hmm. know that she was interested in the film. Okay. So, you know, it's also possible like Caitlin Costello Price might have been something for her. Sure. Or the. The sister. Yeah, or Maureen Rooney, the, the nurse. Yeah. Could have been a lot of things. But I I, I put her here, too, because I don't think she'd be bad as Laura Fisher, either. I don't think so. She wouldn't be right against Paul Newman. That's true. That could be true. She would have. I think she would have been okay against Robert Redford, because, again, she's got the same problem. She reads so youthful. Yeah. She'd be better as, as Caitlin Costello, to be honest. Well, I, I, it wouldn't have bothered. I, I don't think any of those spots would have bothered me, her being in. Fair, fair, fair. All right. Well, let's move on to yet another really great actor who we talked about as one of our only favorite things in Shampoo. Mm-hmm. It's Jack Warden playing Mickey Morrissey. Mm-hmm. He's an instantly recognizable character actor. You've seen him in a ton of stuff. I'm not going to go through all his credits here. What do you think of Jack Warden? He's great because you take him seriously, but he's also kind of your comic relief. He's a he's a pressure valve yes. on, on things, which is needed in this. And he's he's he is able to be such a large man and have such a presence, but be subtle. And that's skill. He has such a light touch with when he decides to turn on either the humor or the dead to right seriousness. Yeah. And you also get from him the reaction of like, fuck, we're getting fucked every which way on this case. Yeah. Like he thinks it's a stupid case to take in the first place. Then they get into it and they can't find a lead. Then finally, once they get in there and it looks like they finally have momentum, the judge seems to be in on it. Yeah. And like the whole time, Frank is so just deep in his own past and, you know, personal hell Mm -hmm. that he's just compartmentalizing everything. Sure. (laughs) 
Mickey has to be the one to like express how the moment feels. Because <laughs> Frank's trying really hard not to feel anything. <laughs> and then you also get the thing of like, Mickey genuinely loves this dude. Yeah. Like, you do not put up with this type of shenanigans and this type of trouble without really caring about someone. He wants him to win. And not like just the case, but just like, I want you to win at life. You are capable. He knows how good a lawyer he is. Yeah. He's like, you are a massive fuck up, but you're such a good attorney and you care. Yeah. You really do care. Sure. Yeah. He's he's phenomenal and really does a really great job supporting this other stuff. Yeah. He really is great. And our main villain in the most non-villain way mm-hmm. is James Mason playing Ed Concanon. We just talked about him for 1954's A Star is Born. This is actually his final major Hollywood movie. Really? Okay. Yes. Um, he did a couple of little things after this, but he, he would pass away relatively soon after this. Mm, okay. What do we think of James Mason in this movie? Oh, he's a dick. But in the most reasonable way. Like, here's the thing. He's the guy you want to be your attorney. Exactly. Like... My whole life, anytime we ever talk, like here, like anytime my parents joked about like going to jail, I was like, here's the thing. If you if you, if you, I need an attorney, I want a scuzzy one. <laughs> <laughs> like that, and that's totally fair. Like it's just the way it is. I mean, I think lawyers can be awesome and they can be genius. They can also be the scum of the earth. This guy is definitely on the scum of the earth side. But at the same time, that's his job. That's my job. Well, what I appreciate about it is that he is willing to play dirty, Mm -hmm. but he's also keeping up appearances. Sure. And he's eminently reasonable about it. Yeah. Nothing about his behavior, other than the fact that we'll, we'll get into some trivia, like he's totally playing against the law. Sure. But he also understands that the law is only as good as it is enforced. Yep. And he is never going to cross the line such that it is obvious what is going on. Even when the judge goes AWOL, I think the most fascinating thing is Mason plays it like he doesn't play it with a wink and a nod to the camera. He plays it in genuine surprise of like, I, I, I'm not expecting this, Frank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean. We all know that the judge doesn't want this case because he just doesn't want to be here. Well, he doesn't want that. He doesn't want... He doesn't want to deal with the archdiocese. No, he doesn't want to get on their bad side. And he doesn't want to be known as a judge who takes these types of cases that others wouldn't. Yeah, it's that whole thing. But like at every point, and, and it really plays in that scene with Con Cannon and Laura. Mm-hmm. And he's he's very plain. He's not trying to menace her. Mm-mm. He's not trying to like be lascivious. He's just like, I'm paying you for the job you've done. This is what it is. Yeah. It's like, I understand that you want to go on to practice law, and that's very important. But the way that we do all of this stuff is by getting into the dirt like this. Like this is part of the job. Yeah. And he's at no point is he unwilling to do that. Mm. <laughs> and he recognizes when he's been beat. Yep. Until he's not, which is just 
oh, such a knife twist right there before the ending. Oh, yeah. Where you think everything's over because he just twists it one last time. Sure. He's masterful. He does such a great job at both mustache twirling, but only to the extent that it's necessary to be that person in court. It's to the house. He's he's mustache twirling to the choir, if you will, to the other attorneys. Yep. Um, which is great because he has to teach them. Like, you know, these are his underlings, but also his co-attorneys and they all got to be on the same page and this is how we're going to be. So get on board. But internally, he's just like, no, this isn't why I got into law, but this pays the bills. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm good at it. Now, who could have been better? Mm. When Robert Redford was going to be Frank Galvin, Paul Newman was going to play Ed Concanon. That would have been fun. <laughs> that could have been fun. Would have been interesting. I, I would have loved to see Paul Newman being that son of a bitch. Give me 10 more years and it works. Sure. I, I can buy it about 10 years after this, but just we got the perfect cast. Oh, yeah. We really did. These four are just so phenomenally good. Mm -hmm. And they take what is a really just like solid movie and really elevate it a mm -hmm. lot. All right. Well, let's go to some R pawns. Just a few. We have Lindsay Krauss playing Caitlin Costello Price. She is a character actress who was formerly married to David Mamet and is the mother of two of the Mamet children, including Zasha. I mean, if you take one look at her, her face is the exact same as Zasha's. Like, <laughs> and that's not a slight. It's just, that's your face. Yeah. We also saw her in Slapshot. Mm. Julie Bavasso playing Maureen Rooney. She is the mom in Saturday Night Fever and Rita, Rose's sister-in-law in Moonstruck. Roxanne Hart playing Sally Donaghy, the sister. She had a long run on Chicago Hope and played the main love interest in Highlander. Oh, okay. Murphy Cross playing a district attorney. She played a Boylan sister in Annie. Okay. Kevin Fennessy as a funeral mourner. He is an actor turned casting director who did extras casting in and around Boston. Okay. And finally, we have two significant courtroom observers. Oh, okay. Uh, they, I believe they can be seen in Frank's final speech, and I didn't catch them, but I've I found some stills. First of all, for the third time this series, Tobin Bell. <laughs> Just lurking around movie sets. 1982 was his year. That was his breakout year. That's so funny. As an extra. But also, in one of his very first film roles, before a television series made him a household name. Mm-hmm. With a full head of hair, ah. Bruce Willis. <laughs> That's awesome. Like the still show him, and it's like full on like Judd Nelson Breakfast Club hair. I'm like, what? That's amazing. Has no lines. He's just in the back as an extra. That's cool. Behind Paul fucking Newman. That's amazing. Yeah. And that is it for the people involved. So let's get to awards. Awards. Now, this movie, not a big movie. Not going to have a lot of flesh, but it got nominated for some of the best stuff out there. Oh, okay. okay. Look at the big one. It was nominated for five Academy Awards. Best Adapted Screenplay for David Mamet. Uh, yep, earned. Best Supporting Actor for James Mason. Okay, yeah, I see it. Best Actor for Paul Newman. Sure. Best Director for Sidney Lumet. Okay. 
And in a year where only five pictures get taken, it was nominated for Best Picture. Of the ones we've seen, I'm I'm okay with that. I don't disagree. I'm not I'm not mad about it. I know. <laughs> I'm, I'm not I'm not angry. It's a really stellar movie. It just is. All right, let's go to some trivia. Trivia. Despite being set in Boston, filming mostly took place all throughout New York. Okay. They scouted locations all throughout Massachusetts, but it's very likely that Fox refused to film there because the state had laws refusing exhibitors from purchasing unseen studio films. Hmm. They had unfriendly tax laws in Boston at the time. Yeah. They did do some minor exterior shooting, but NYC serves as the main uh, filming place. Okay. The bar where Frank meets Laura and frequents is the same bar that is featured in Serpico. It's located at 108 Avenue B in Manhattan. Oh, okay. In the novel, the settlement offer is referred to as a, quote, gazinta because the amount goes into three because it's signifying that it's an easy way to split the contingency. Mm-hmm. That 210 is a, is a very interesting figure because it's automatically divisible by three, which shows we want this to go away now. Yes. Both lawyers in this film engage in conduct that would very easily get them disbarred. Mm-hmm. Galvin, of course, receives a settlement offer, but never informs his clients about the offer. Yep. That's grounds for disbarment. Mm-hmm. However, Concanon tells Galvin's clients about that settlement. Which is also (laughs) disbarable. Speaking to them without counsel present. Mm -hmm. Also, the whole Concanon paying Laura to get to know Frank, that would definitely get him disbarred. Mm -hmm. All of the different stuff with, you know, witness tampering, which is debatable. Like, you can coach witnesses to begin with. It happens all the time. It's, you know, it's it's form of witness preparation, which is totally valid, but is typically witness coaching and witness hiding also totally happens. Yeah. And I give credit to the movie for doing it in the very realistic way that it would be done. Mm -hmm. When you coach a witness, part of it is that you're not getting them to not tell the truth. Sure. You're trying to get them to tell a truth in a way that a jury will really soak that truth in. Yes. And also, particularly with something like a a malpractice, there's usually a lot of jargon and you have to, especially with doctors, people in the medical field, you have to get them to stop trying to over explain things. It's the same problem with having an attorney Um, as a witness. They just are trying to outmaneuver you. Yeah. It's done in such a, a, a smart, believable yes. way. And finally, both Jack Warden, playing Mickey, and Edward Binns, who plays the Archbishop, who appear in this film, were jurors number six and seven in Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men. Oh, fun. And that will lead us to ratings for this film. Mm. For every film, we have a specific rating system. Is it going to be the eyedropper or the breath freshener it's verdicts david oh boo boo it's what the whole movie is about boo you're only booing because the movie's about his alcoholism come on wrong (laughs) it's about both honestly i mean two things can be true okay fine 
many verdicts are you going to give this movie? Um, four and a half. Same. <laughs> <laughs> it's really good. I'm surprised. I'm, I'm not really surprised that I like it. Again, I, you know, I have a well-documented history of loving the good wife. So, yeah. But, uh, yeah, there's just a couple little, like, story believability, you know, continuity type things that I want to make it a five. But the yeah. performances are great. I like the story. It's a good movie. It's a small movie. I should get more play. It really should. And um, that will lead us into what will be the big finale. Mm. Because, see, there's controversy. Oh. Because, I mean, the verdict was a really good movie. Was it the best movie? Was it the movie that the Oscars believed was the best movie? Well, we have to go watch the 55th Academy Awards. Yes, much like the current Oscars. Uh, we've watched all the films, so now we're going to go talk about the actual awards. The fact that we have watched a bunch of these movies already for mm. this show before yeah. this series... When we get to the list of nominees for this year, it's wild how many of these we had already covered before we got here. Yeah, that's kind of how we settled on this year because <laughs> we're like, well, we'll hit a like we've already done a bunch, and then <laughs> um, we'll hit some other like obscure things, and it's just kind of like, yeah, that like that sounds like a cool mix, except for that boat movie. All right, let's do it. And I, I mean, I stand corrected. The boat movie was pretty good. The boat movie was really fucking great. I, li I liked the boat movie. I know. So, you know, I was wrong. I can admit it. So yeah, <laughs> like that's how we picked this year. So that's cool. And this is a really fun way to go through movies. And I think particularly this year, it was a perfect reflection of the 2022 slate it's such a wide variety of stuff it's a great year um i'm super excited about the presenters because there's some there's people we know for once yes <laughs> presenting at the academy awards <laughs> yeah it's people that we grew up being like they're a movie star uh -huh. which is that's how old we are now which is fun <laughs> well <laughs> there's there's some people here that were a little bit ahead of our time fair but still uh, it should be fun. So we're going to go sit down, turn on some YouTube clips, pop some popcorn, and enjoy the glitz and glamour of 1983 for the 55th Academy Awards, celebrating the films of 1982. Yep. So until next time, have a good movie. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Facebook.